All right, friends, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 3. We are going to be finishing up chapter 3 today in our quest through this letter to the churches in Galatia. If you don't have a Bible, make sure you raise your hand, and our gentleman will bring one to your seat for you. And uh, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Go ahead, sir. So I'm wondering if the worship team went to go see Bohemian Rhapsody this week or something after that, uh, the musical interlude we had during our, during our welcome time. Appreciate you all putting the time in. I know that uh, with the smoke in the air, it's kind of an occupational hazard for people who use their voice. I've had to be really careful not to lose my voice with, uh, with the smoke. It's been causing a lot of, a lot of gruffness and, um, and uh, sinus problems. So we appreciate y'all braving the elements and coming out to worship the Lord on this wonderful Sunday. And uh, I trust you'll be blessed and encouraged by what you experience here today. All right, I want you to finish up a sentence for me. My very eager mother just served us nine pizzas. Is that not a thing anymore? Oh man, it's not a thing anymore. Okay, when I was a kid... When I was a kid, and you're learning astronomy, right? You're trying to teach the children the planets in our solar system. And so they had this fun little saying that you would repeat, my very eager mother just served us nine pizzas. And that was a way of remembering that Mercury, Venus, Earth, so on and so forth. You get the idea how our planets are arranged. There was a time when every child would have said nine pizzas at the end of my failed illustration. Sadly, that day has passed away. In August 2006, it was decided by a panel of soul-crushing scientists that Pluto no longer qualifies to be a planet. Apparently, it's got a lot of the features that a planet has. It's, it's got a, a rotation that has caused it to be round and not oval in shape. Uh, it circles the sun in a consistent pattern, but unfortunately it doesn't dominate its neighborhood, which means that the five moons that are clustered along with Pluto don't necessarily rotate around Pluto. So that has caused these scientists to change their mind. They have reclassified Pluto. It is no longer a planet. It is now a dwarf planet. And I, I know people like me who grew up with nine planets in the solar system feel pretty bad about that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter at all, does it, what we call Pluto. Pluto still keeps the same orbit. It's still roughly half the size of the United States. It's still a glorified snowball with a surface temperature of about 230 degrees Celsius below zero. It takes 248 years to orbit Earth. None of that has changed. Its redefinition, redefinition has basically changed nothing about what Pluto actually is. On the other hand, We've discussed recently the fact that those who trust Christ go through some major changes in definition, the result of which cannot leave a life the way that it was prior to interaction with Jesus. Massive game-changing shifts have occurred in those who have put their faith in God's Son. And that's what we're going to examine today as we look at the last verses of Galatians chapter 3. We're going to talk about how we are redefined once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, what changes about us? How do we become new when we are no longer living for ourselves, but we have come to repent of our sins and live for the glory of Jesus who we've been singing about all morning? So if you've got your scriptures and you want to open them up, 
Galatians chapter 3. I'll be reading for us verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This passage begins by marking a particular event which made a major impact on the way that God interacted with his people. Paul begins by drawing our attention to this coming of faith that he mentions in verse 23. For years the Israelite people had anticipated that God would send a chosen one, a redeemer, who would be sent of God to make right so much of what we have made wrong by our sin. Israel had been struggling. They had been struggling to keep the covenant that they had made with God, first through the Abrahamic covenant and then later through the Mosaic covenant. And God was giving them hope by telling them through uh, prophets such as Isaiah, through the Psalms, that he would send a Messiah, a Savior who would come and redeem them from their sin. Faith has come historically in the sense that by the time Paul writes Galatians, Jesus has descended to earth. He has been born of a virgin woman, Mary. He lived life in the same manner that you and I did, albeit without the stain of sin. And he accomplished his core earthly mission by dying on the cross for the transgressions of everyone who had put their faith and trust in him and in his work. So historically, faith has come because Jesus, the object of our faith, has lived, he has died, he has rose again to pay the penalty of death for sinners. Faith has come. But that doesn't exactly mean that there wasn't faith before Jesus, does it? It means that the prime object of that faith has now been revealed to us. The one whom we can sincerely trust has been revealed by God. And His arrival has radically changed things for those who do in fact believe in Him by faith. We talked about how Abraham, long before Jesus, had faith in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Jesus' arrival didn't mean that faith was suddenly invented. It means that the object of our faith had come. Abraham was trusting in Jesus, though he didn't know to call Him Jesus when he trusted in Yahweh and God's plan. So we need to see the coming of faith in a historical sense. But we also need to see the coming of faith that's described here in verse 23 in a personal capacity as well. Faith has come personally to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It has come historically in the fact that Jesus came, He lived, He died, He rose miraculously. But faith hasn't quite arrived for you until you put your faith in and trust in that incredibly important saving event. Jesus Christ was willing to give his life and that he conquered death and sin by rising on the third day. 
Once you have trusted Christ, then faith has come for you and you will never be the same. Now, Paul begins to describe how. And we're going to see that first, the coming of faith has redefined our freedom and has redefined what it means to have freedom in this lifetime. Before faith came to us by way of Jesus' accomplished work, we were held captive, according to this passage of Scripture. We were imprisoned, as Paul described it last week, in verse 22. That idea is further developed here as Paul challenges us to see it in such a way that we were seized by a disciplinarian, a person who detained us like a powerful guardian and seriously limited our freedom. Of course, we're talking about right now the law of Moses. That before we are set free by Christ, the law glaringly declares us as sinners against the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And so this law holds us captive. There are two aspects or senses of this captivity. There is a negative restraining sense. The law that God gave through Moses sought to limit what we can do. It put regulations upon us. Because what we would naturally choose to do is at its very essence wicked, right? Human beings are selfish by nature. We can thank Adam and Eve for that. We have inherited that sinful curse and so all of us are born prone to wander from God. But there is also a positive aspect of this guardianship that the law has over us. There is a protective component. Until faith in Christ redefined us, the law worked to protect the world from itself. These laws that keep us from being as wicked as we could be limit our self-destructive behavior and in a sense keep us from harming ourselves. Just as an inmate in prison who has no control over his rage or is fatally addicted to drugs is incarcerated and then in their incarceration they are protected from their own self-destructive behavior. So too does the law before Christ comes keeps us from destroying ourselves as quickly as we would. This concept is going to be addressed in a lot more detail as we get into the beginning of chapter 4 next week. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on the aspect of freedom that has changed for us today. But for now, let us go so far as to recognize that the law, acting as our prison warden, as our disciplinarian, has held us captive until the seed of the gospel took root in our hearts. And we responded to the work of Christ in faith. Up to that point, the law held us as prisoners and our freedoms could not be realized. But the coming of faith has freed us from that proverbial prison. And we have a new lease on life, as we have learned last week and the week before. We are no longer under the law, are we? The law still exists, and as we, we learned last week, it's still a benefit to us in some ways, but we are not underneath its yoke. It's not a burden to us anymore. Now, through Christ, we can experience a new kind of freedom. But since faith has come historically, personally, we have not only experienced a change in our freedom, we have also experienced a change at the very core of our identity. And that is what we're going to focus on primarily today. That who we are as people, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who you are fundamentally shifts, it transforms. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We were not sons of God until faith came. And that's something for us to, to point out here. 
Many people who are walking through this world think that because God made us, because we are the product of His creativity, that every human being is a son or daughter of God. But the Scripture describes to us in the New Testament a different reality. It shares with us that we are not sons of God by birth, but rather our sonship, our place as daughters in the kingdom of God, is something that is given to us as a free gift through adoption. Before God brought faith to us, and with it a means by which we might be washed clean from our sin, we were in rebellion to God. We were detestable to Him because we shook our fist at His authority and turned our back on His right rule in this world. God has brought His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, to change all of that. As a perfect being, as a holy and just being, He could not be near to that which is sinful and rebellious. And so our status as we are born into this world is not not good when it comes to God. Our status is not, we're not on good terms with our maker. We are born rebellious to him. We're we're born as those who, who are his enemies, who fight against his kingdom. And that is still true of much of the world that we live in because much of the world has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. Paul isn't writing his message of encouragement here to the whole world, is he? He's writing to churches in Galatia. Churches that are filled with believers, both Gentile believers and Jewish believers who have come to trust that Jesus is indeed that Messiah that the Scripture had been pointing forward to for so many generations. This message is not to the whole world because the whole world is not yet reconciled to Christ. If you have not put your faith in Jesus then you cannot rightly be called a son of God yet. But I'm hopeful that as the gospel is preached in our church and in churches around the world, that more and more people would understand how importantly critical it is to go through this transformation where God brings you into his family and transforms you from sinner, rebel, transgressor, into son, embraced by God, a part of the family, and belonging to the kingdom. When the faith that has historically come to this world in the person of Jesus Christ comes personally onto our hearts. When we see Him for who He is, when we recognize how desperately we need Him, then God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, causes us to desire repentance, causes us to want to turn away from that wickedness that has made us an enemy to Him for so long. And when we return, or when we turn away from our sin, when we repent of those things that have caused us to be at conflict with God, and we reach out in faith to Jesus Christ, who has reached out to us through His blood by giving His life, then we experience a radically new solidarity, an unprecedented unity, first with God, as our sin which kept us far from Him is eliminated, and we can now be near to Him in a family way, but also to one another as we draw close through the same common means. We become near to God through the salvation that only has the power to save us. We go from being God's enemies to being His beloved children. What a radical shift this must be for for people who have, for our whole lives, lived on our own and lived away from the rule of God. I remember reading about, um, during World War II in in Nazi Germany, a lady named Corrie Ten Blum, who was a German citizen. And yet, she had many dear friends that were Jewish. If you've never... uh, if you've never examined her life story, it's worth taking some time to go and read her testimony. Corrie ten Bloom uh, was so compassionate to the Jewish people that were being 
trucked away and bussed away into these internment camps that she felt compelled by God to do something about it. And in their home, though they were safe, though they were not at odds to the Nazi regime as German citizens, uh, they were not considered a threat to, uh, to Hitler's rule, they decided to take the risk of doing what they could to keep other Jewish people from being shipped away to these internment camps and murdered. And so in their home, they built a fake wall and they began to hide people inside a little compartment in their home. And <clears throat> because of this action that they took, they were able to save dozens of Jewish people and give them the time that they needed to arrange safe passage out of Germany so that they wouldn't be put into these internment camps. This went on for quite some time, but eventually the Nazis found out about Corrie ten Bloom and her family's efforts, and they themselves were thrown into the same internment camps that the Jews were put in. So even though they, they were German citizens, they were given the same fate as their Jewish countrymen. And uh, Corrie ten Bloom spent years in this internment situation. Um, it was... It was a touch-and-go situation. She could have died several times in those camps. But through it all, she preached Christ to the Jews that were there. She preached hope in Jesus Christ to her fellow inmates and showed them that through his love, they could be transformed. That They didn't have to fear this, this Nazi regime. They didn't even have to fear this death that was being forced upon them by this wicked, wicked rule. Eventually, praise the Lord, Corey Tim Bloom was freed from that internment camp. Uh, the Allied forces were able to prevail over Nazi Germany, and those who remained in the camps at the moment of that victory were set free. Well, years later, Corrie ten Bloom tells of how she was traveling around, sharing her story with various churches, and she went to one particular church. And as she was finishing her speech, she encouraged people to come down to the front, and she would meet with them, she would speak with them face-to-face -face and, uh, and, and, and shake their hand and give them a hug. And then suddenly she stopped and her heart skipped a beat because she saw in the crowd of believers there that day one of the very soldiers who had held her captive in the internment camp that she had spent years in suffering. This man, this German national who had served in the SS, got up from his seat and walked down the aisle. And as she saw him come forward towards her, she didn't know what she was going to be able to do. She didn't know if she would slap the man. She didn't know if she would curse his name because she had seen such wickedness from these soldiers that had oppressed her and oppressed these Jewish people that she loved so dearly. She did not know how she would handle it. So all she could do was pray in her heart and in her mind as she saw each new step, that man approaching her, God, give me grace to treat this man how you would have me treat this man. And as he slowly approached and then came face to face with Corey ten Bloom, she reached out her hand and took his hand in her hand and embraced in, in a handshake. And the man said, I just wanted to tell you how sorry I am. I was one of those soldiers, but Christ has set me free. I hope you can forgive me. Think about that contrast. That here is a woman who was oppressed by another human being, who was hurt, who was threatened at, at, with death by this man, and yet now they stand face to face and because of the radical work of Jesus Christ on the cross. These former enemies are now brother and sister. And only by the grace of Jesus, Corey ten Bloom is able to forgive this man and to embrace him 
as one of her family. That is radical transformation, friends. That is, that is a difference that I don't see any other way that can happen in the world that we live in except through Christ. This adoption by faith whereby human beings who are rebels against the king have now been offered this chance to have their sins expunged and paid for by the very king they tried to topple. And not only is their record expunged and their sins washed clean, but now that same king says, enter into the walls of my kingdom. Come into my security. I am going to make you one of my people. I am going to love you like you were my own. This results in a drastic redefinition of who we are. And just as a reminder, this transformation cannot be earned. It's nothing that a human being like you or me could ever merit from God. We, by all measures, deserve to be kicked out of the kingdom of God forever by the fact that we have broken His law. And we break it even still today. Faith is not a work. Paul has gone to great lengths to explain that to us here in this letter to the Galatians. It is trusting in God's better, more complete and perfect work. And if you think about the idea of adoption, that makes a lot of sense because adoption is not something that you can earn. Adoption is not something that can be forced upon a family, is it? It must be offered freely. My brother worked for a, a, a glazing company, a glass company in Arkansas, and he still works for this company. He's been there for many, many years now. And it was a family company. And my, my brother's a really hard worker. He, he's got a great work ethic. He, uh, he, he works hard. He, he learns quick. And he's a great people person. So he was a very valuable asset to that company. But that was a family-owned company. And, and there was nobody in that company who was in a management position unless their name was the same name as what was on the side of that truck. My brother could work his tail off. He could work his hands to the bone for that company, but there's nothing that he could do that could force them to put him into management. Thankfully, his great work ethic uh, you know, wore off on these people. They, they, they began to love him. They began to care for him. And they, of their own free will, offered him a management position. The first person in the history of that company to ever be in a management position who was not one of the family. But that's not something that he could have, he could have demanded from them. He had, he had to be given that free uh, uh, by, by their graceful offer. And that is how it is with us in Jesus Christ. No matter how hard you work, you can't work your way back into heaven. This transformation that we're talking about today is something that God must give to us freely as an offer. Come and be a part of our family. Enter into my home and dwell with me. To be saved is, is so much more than just a simple pardon. It's a radical change in position. It is a transformation of priority. It is a difference in belonging. It is a new mission for our life. It is a greater and completely different passion by which we now live. And so let's take a moment to consider what privileges come with this radical transformation of identity. What are some of the things that we can thank the Lord for if we have given our lives to Christ? How has He made us new? First of all, we can be thankful that God has given us His paternal love. He has chosen to love us as if we were His very own flesh and blood. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. I love that little part at the end there where John clarifies, you're not just called a child of God. You are a child of God now through Jesus Christ if you have put your faith in Him.
See, we're no longer his enemy. We are no longer the ones that he needs to defeat. We are now his beloved. We're the recipients of his great nurturing affection. His right wrath has been satisfied on Christ and Calvary. And there is no more judgment left for you and for me. Isn't humanity dying to be loved? I mean, just turn on your radio and listen to some popular music and you'll see that almost every song has some sort of element of love in it. Human beings are are crazy about being loved. And yet here, the greatest lover of all time, the one who gives perfect, undying, enduring love, has said, I want to be your father and I want to love you as part of my family. What a tremendous blessing that has been given to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ that we now belong to a father who won't leave us or forsake us, who won't get bored with us and move on to other things, who won't neglect us, who has all the resources in the world to take care of us. This God can be our father through faith. Secondly, we've been redeemed by that father. We can praise the Lord God that he has purchased us out of a terrible situation and brought us into a life that is full and good and healthy. Ephesians 1 verses 4 through 7 says that in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Who is the beloved? Jesus Christ the one offspring of Abraham, right? In him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Because we have this God who says, I will be a father to you, we have one who can purchase for us that which we could never afford. Freedom from the guilt that we earn through our rebellious hearts. Jesus has paid in his own blood for our complete redemption, sent by the Father, willing to die, and able to rise again on the third day. And so we just sang a song a little bit earlier. We sang that He has brought me back with the riches of His amazing grace and relentless love. Our lives, which were on a crash course for destruction, have been salvaged for holier use by this God who now wants to call us His kids. We've been forgiven and we've been welcomed into his home. Thirdly, we have confidence now to draw near to God, our Abba Father. Romans 8, verses 14 through 15 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Friends, while a reverent fear will always rightfully be there, because we know that God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts, that He is higher and above us, that He is perfect and immovable, that He is by necessity righteous and just and holy, though there will always be a sense of reverent fear for Him, we no longer have to dread God's judgment. If you have Jesus Christ, all of that has been taken care of for you. Now we can approach the throne with confidence, not expecting condemnation, but expecting our loving Father to hear our cries and to respond in the way that a father wants to respond to his son for whom he wants the best. So we have a confidence now in Christ um, that has been bought for us through his blood. 
we can also rejoice that we are surrounded now by brothers and sisters of kindred faith. This new identity has afforded to us a connection with other human beings that have also, formerly being rebels to God, been redeemed to be a part of this great family. 2 Corinthians 6.18, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. You can look around in this room and see the faces of sons and daughters who have been bought from sin and have been purchased into a family of love and acceptance. I was uh, blessed to go to the food pantry yesterday. I try to get out there once or twice a month and, and spend some time with uh, the clients who come in and receive food. And uh, it's always a blessing to me to, to see those neighbors come and, and to be welcomed with open arms. No matter what walk of life they come from, they're not judged. They're just brought into the building and they're, they're given fellowship. They're given snacks and coffee. They're, we, we pray with them. We get to know their story. And I love that at Food Pantry, our neighbors can come and experience a little taste of what it's like to belong to the family of God. But that's not really the family of God. The family of God is something more than that. And I pray every week when I go to Food Pantry that some of those people that come to Food Pantry, if they're not involved with another church and experiencing the family there, that they would come and experience the real family of God, which is where we gather like this, which is where we look out for each other and we walk step by step together as brothers and sisters in Christ, as friends that stick closer than brothers, when you have put your trust in the Lord and you have committed yourself to walk in His mission alongside other believers in a local community like this, you form bonds with them that cannot be broken easily by this world. And the camaraderie and the friendship that you have and the fact that others know you, they can understand that you were a sinner too like them. They, they know what that's like to have been a failure, but then to have been redeemed. They understand what it's like to live in constant dependence on Jesus Christ and, and to struggle against the flesh. They fight that battle alongside you. There are so many blessings that come with being a part of one heavenly household, which is the heavenly household we are part of by faith. I think uh, th there's also another aspect of this fact that we are saved along with other brothers and sisters, right? Sorry, you can't be an only child in the kingdom of God. God wants you to not only know His love, but He also wants you to know the love of brothers and sisters, and He wants them to know your love. So as many times as I've run into people that say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, Jesus is my Savior, but they have nothing to do with church, that idea is foreign to the Scriptures of God. God has built the church as His bride. And if we want to belong to Him, He desires for us to belong to Him in the context of that loving family environment. We can't be only children of the Lord where we just keep it between Him and us. We've got to learn to interact with our brothers and sisters and to care for those who have also been redeemed the way that we have been redeemed. If you truly belong to Jesus, your Father expects you to be a part of the family of God. Uh, another reason why we can rejoice is that we are entitled to discipline as sons. Hebrews 12, 7 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And you might say, whoa, 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 that doesn't belong in the list. <laughs> I, got, I was tracking with you until now, but this whole idea of being blessed with discipline, where are you coming from with that? Well, listen, when you ask to be a part of God's family, when he invited you in, 
He became your father, right? And a father is not a good father unless he teaches and trains his sons and daughters to do what is right. And so last week as we talked about how we should understand the law, it is not this thing that we just throw out the window. We don't become antinomians who say there's no more laws now. I'm free because of grace to do whatever I want to do. That would be radically negligent on us because God has invited us into a family whereby that law is the standard of the house. And we're not under the yoke of the law anymore. It's not by the law that we approach our God, but that law has real consequences. There's a reason that he has given it to us. And so because God is a good father and he loves us, he will discipline us. He will let us experience a portion of the hurt that comes when we sin against him and sin against others so that we will see how much it stings. So we'll see that sin is a great separator, that sin wants to put a wedge between us and our Father and keep us from being as close as we should be. And so God, who loves us, will discipline us rather than letting us run off into rebellion and just waving goodbye as we go. He will love us to the degree that He will not allow sin to continue to dwell in our lives. The Holy Spirit will convict our hearts. He will shake it up for us so that we must see that sin has no place in our lives. This is a privilege. This kind of discipline grows and matures us and is in our best interest. And then finally, we anticipate an inheritance as the children of God. This is part of our identity now, that we know an inheritance from God's wealth, His, his fortune, his, his great resources, is now in part coming to us. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Our identity by necessity is found in Christ now. And those who are in Christ have something great to look forward to. When you read Scripture and it says that He has gone to prepare a place for us, He means that He intends to dwell with us forever. And he intends to dwell with us in the, in the myriad of blessings that God has to give. By being a part of this family of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we have so much to look forward to inheriting once we are finished with our journey here on earth. It's funny. Uh, I, I, it always baffles me what makes it on the news these days. You ever notice that? Like something, like there's fires raging and there's real things going on. And then there'll be a front page headline about Draymond Green fighting with KD. Yeah. And everybody's talking about this this bickering fight that the number one team in the league had. And that's news? Another thing that always baffles me is news about the royal family in England. We're not even in England. Like, why are we concerned about who's dating who and who has what kid and all the little rules that they're supposed to follow? And yet I think it's because people are so obsessed, they have this fantasy of one day being royalty themselves. They dream what it would be like to live in Buckingham Palace and to be surrounded by all that pomp and circumstance. If you're a believer, you're already a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. You have such an incredible inheritance. Stop being covetous of lesser things in the world and look forward to the return of Christ whereby we will be ushered into this wonderful inheritance that God has prepared for us. An internal inheritance whereby we call the king of the universe our own dad. So there are so many blessings that come to us through this reality of our new identity, that we have been transformed and changed in such a way that who we were cannot be who we are anymore. Our identity by necessity is now found in Him. 
His identity as father sets the stage for our identity as sons. And so it goes on to say in in the passage we're studying today, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. It should not be a surprise to us that Paul would bring up baptism at this exact moment. Because baptism represents the clearest intersection between the historical faith that has come and the personal faith that has come. We trust the Lord in our heart, but we make it public in the confessional sacrament of baptism. And doing so identifies us with that corporate body of believers who are now our family by faith. They rejoice along with us as we proclaim to the world that I'm no longer who I was. I am a new creation in Christ. And so in the dramatic symbol of baptism, the old life has been declared literally dead and buried. And the individual now rises in unity with Jesus' resurrection. So when we have somebody come forward for baptism, we have you know, a tub of water. And we proclaim to the people who are there witnessing this event that the individual who's entering into that water is entering in in faith, that they have placed their trust in the Son of God, that they have come to learn the the ugly part of their own identity, that they are sinners and rebellious to the Lord by nature, but they've also come to see that there's nothing they could do to remedy that rebellion. They've also identified Jesus Christ as the one solution to their sin. And by repenting and turning away from their sin and putting their life in the hands of Jesus, they are proclaiming to the world that what they were before is now passed away. That rebellious tendency to fight against God and to try to build our own kingdoms has been laid to rest. And we take that individual who professes that to the people who are watching and we bring them underneath water. That immersion symbolizes that the old life has been buried in the ground. It has been put to death. And so in a sense, that brief second under the water is like a memorial service for what we used to be. And then as that individual comes up out of the water, we all rejoice because we are identifying the new life that they have in Christ Jesus, that God has granted to them a new identity that is significantly different than the identity that they used to have. And so he he points to baptism here. And baptism is a fitting, dramatic illustration because part of us must die in this process of God making us new. Part of us has got to be put to rest. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where it says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is kind of referring to the ancient Hebrew act of circumcision, which is an identifier, a physical sign of connection to the covenant of Abraham. Verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So it's showing that, look, you know, circumcision isn't a necessary thing anymore. We've moved on from that requirement of the law. But God still wants you to understand that you are identified with Christ and with fellow believers who put their faith in him. Putting off the old and dying to the self is necessary for us to put on the new, to be clothed in Jesus Christ. Now, some people have taken this passage of Scripture, I understand, and have argued that this verse shows baptism is a strict requirement for salvation. But what would be wrong with thinking that direction? In order to make that claim, you would have to kind of ignore everything that Paul has said 
up to this point. That would be entirely contrary to the major case that he has made against the law for the bulk of the letter so far. Jesus plus anything is not this, the formula for salvation. Jesus alone is what saves. And so we've seen Paul already oppose these Judaizers who came in and preached that, oh yes, you need Jesus, but you also need circumcision. And you need to follow the dietary laws of Judaism. And you need to practice the temple rites. And you've got to do all these things. And Paul has made it resoundingly clear, no, you are saved by faith in Jesus alone. You don't need any of that other stuff. So then why would Paul come in and say, oh, except for baptism. You also need baptism. Baptism is the only other requirement he would essentially just be changing the name of the error that his opponents made. He would be bringing his own people under the law again. So we can't look at these passages of scriptures which identifies baptism as a significant symbol of what is happening. We can't say that this means that you must be baptized in order to be saved. Rather, Paul is describing how those who have been immersed in Christ have professed that their fallen identity is dead and buried. And they have been given a new identity that is defined by Christ himself who has clothed us in his righteousness. So baptism models justification, but baptism itself can never accomplish justification. It is a work and works do not save. In other areas, Paul has used an imperative command to instruct the church to put something on. You might remember in Ephesians chapter 6 he says, Put on the full armor of God. Clothe yourself in the kinds of things that will protect you from the sinful advances of the world. And then in Romans 13, 11, 14, he says to take off darkness and to put on the armor of light. But in this particular passage, Paul is not instructing them to put on Christ. He is citing the transformational fact that they have already put on Christ, that they have clothed themselves in the righteousness of Jesus, and that is now their identity. So as baptism illustrates our death to selfish living, it also signifies our entrance into this corporate life whereby we are now identified together in Jesus Christ, specifically through his resurrection. This unification produces a solidarity among all who believe, regardless of how different they may have perceived themselves to be before they had faith in Jesus. And so verse 28, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament when it comes to our identity it challenges us to consider the radical change of identity that is described. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see how many aspects of human identity that are so precious to us? God says, listen, everything that used to define you is now secondary to your true identity, which is in Christ Jesus. And so he, he cites, you, there is neither Jew nor Greek here. What is he talking about? He's talking about race. So many of us were, were, were raised in an environment where our race was very critical to us and we took much pride in our race and, and our race set us apart from others in the world. We thought of ourselves as having a heritage and we were significantly different than other races in the world. But Jesus is saying here, no, your race is not what defines you anymore. Whether you're Irish or Cherokee or African American or whether you're an Eskimo or whether you're, you're Korean, it, it's not as important anymore as the fact that you're in Christ. You have been brought into one family now 
And that family is a beautifully diverse family. But what makes you you is not the DNA that floats around in your blood. What makes you new and what makes you you is Jesus Christ and the powerful work that he has accomplished in you. If we find our identity in our, in our race, guess what the enemy loves to do? He likes to corrupt that understanding through pride. And that's why we live in a world where there is racism abounding. We live in a world where we struggle to feel at one with one another because the pride that the enemy is trying to whisper us to grab a hold to and to stoke like a flame in our lives, our pride for where we came from and for others who have walked before us can often separate us rather than bring us together. And so I love that, that the Lord God here has now declared there is neither Jew nor Greek when it comes to salvation. You are all part of one family. And those things are not completely washed away because, I mean, obviously, Paul's still preaching to Jews and to Greeks. So it's, it's a reality that we have to contend with. But from the perspective of, of God, and in regards to salvation, it doesn't mean anything anymore. You are now Christ's if you have put your faith in him. Secondly, he describes that you are neither slave nor free. And what does this describe to us? It describes the rank that we might hold in the culture of this world. It doesn't matter what social class you're born into or you have earned through your hard work. Whether you walk into a church as a billionaire or whether you crawl into a church clothed in rags, both of you need the same Jesus Christ. And apart from Jesus Christ, none of the wealth of this world will secure your eternity in heaven. So it is rendered absolutely, absolutely clear by Paul here that who you are it, it, it can't be t told by the brand that's inside of your shirt that you're wearing right now or the kind of car you're going to drive home in today. That you belong to the Lord Christ and that is the most important thing when it comes to who you are, to your identity, to the way that other people should see you. Thirdly, there is neither male and female here. Gender is not the thing that should primarily define us. Again, these categories are not absolutely wiped clean by Jesus here because the New Testament goes on to speak to each of these categories and talk about how males can live out their obedience to the Lord, females can live out their obedience to the Lord, even how slaves can live out their obedience to the Lord as opposed to masters living out their obedience to the Lord. But when it comes to who we truly are, you are not limited in any way, shape, or form if you were born a woman. God loves you and His Son Jesus Christ died for you. If you are a man, God can love you. God sent his son to die for you. That is more important than what you genetically are when you are born. How important is this message to Paul? How important is it for him to get across this message of unity to his churches? It's important enough that he shared it almost verbatim in two other different letters. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. See how he identifies that old life that we must put behind us now? Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. 
seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the, cre uh, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So we must understand our redemption as bringing us into a glorious new unity with God and with our new brothers and sisters. Some of our individuality, friends, this is, this is a hard truth of what we're learning today. Some of our individuality necessarily disappears when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. There is an opportunity cost to following him. You cannot just go on being all the things that you were before because Christ has come to set you free from much of them. Not only from hell, but from the sin that used to rule and reign in your life. He wants to set you free from that which affected your character in an ungodly way, from that which polluted your heart, from that which clouded your mind, from that which affected your behavior and caused you to walk in a way that was not pleasing to the Lord God. God wants to radically transform you. And in order for that to happen, you have got to let go the grip on who you are and allow Him to change your very definition. To be identified with Christ, some of your former self will pass away. And that's not something that many are willing to give up. If you're here today and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, I challenge you to ask yourself this bold question. Am I willing to put on Christ today? If that means that some of what up to this point I formerly identified as myself will have to be covered up by Christ in the process. Are you willing to allow Christ to cover up what, some of what used to be you? And you've been you for a long time, haven't you? Ever since you can remember, you've had your tendencies and your habits and your patterns and you've thought the way you've thought and you've acted the way that you have acted. And yet the God of all creation is coming into your life today and is saying, listen, there is available to you a new life. If your sinful tendencies have dissatisfied you, if you have been able to look at yourself clearly in the mirror and say, I'm not everything I'm cracked up to be. And if you would like to change, then Christ can change you. But he does it his way. And when Christ changes us and brings this newness to our lives, he does so with a scalpel. He does so in such a way that parts of us must be pruned away and left behind because that is not what God is saving you into. John 3.30 is this wonderful little verse that I encourage you to memorize. It's from John the Baptist, who many were coming to him and, and exalting him for his great ministry and his wonderful radical work that he was doing and preaching the gospel with boldness. And John put them all into perspective when he says, he must increase, I must decrease. When we allow Christ to wrap himself around us. When we are clothed in his righteousness, then part of what we used to be won't be seen through that righteousness anymore. And good riddance to that. We will learn to be thankful for what God takes away. We will be learned to be grateful and to rejoice in the fact that I'm not the man that I used to be. I'm something so much better because now I'm walking in the plans of my king. Now your personal identity is not annihilated in faith. 
You don't become some little Christian robot that just looks exactly like every other Christian robot. He's not assembled an army of clones here. You, as a believer, have been given unique spiritual gifts. God's story is the same in every believer, but it is also unique in some ways. The way that he brought you to the cross of Jesus Christ is unique to you and to your history. And that is a beautiful thing. We have different callings. We live in different cultures. We've been given various gifts. We all reflect the image of God in a brilliant and multifaceted way. And so much as your personality is unique in the way that it displays Christ, then that is a blessing because Christ is a diverse and dynamic individual. So don't think that trusting in Jesus is going to make you a carbon copy of every other Christian that ever walked this earth. But it does make you his. And if you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So Paul ties us back to that that concept that we learned before, that this has always been the plan of the Lord God and that he is now bringing you into this wonderful plan so that you might experience the blessings that were promised to Abraham when God told him, not only will I make you a great offspring, but your offspring will be a blessing to every nation of this world. What matters most is not your gender. It's not your economic status. It is not your race. What matters is who you belong to. And if you've placed your faith in the one and only Son of God, you have come to belong to Him. You are now, along with every believer, through the history of redemption, who call themselves your brother and your sister, you are now in Christ. Your life is now defined by what He has made you to be. And I, I, I want to encourage you, if you're here today and that statement that I just read isn't yet true of you, but you are interested in becoming a part of the family of God. I thank you for coming today, and I hope that you paid close attention to what we were learning together, and I pray that you will go to the scripture and you will learn more about this Jesus. I pray that you won't just sit there silently, but that you will engage with someone else. Come and talk to me after the service. If you're open to it, one of our elders would be very happy to sit and talk to you about what it means to follow after Christ. Here's some of the stories of individuals here who have been transformed whose old self has been laid to rest and new self has been brought forward because of Christ's love. I would love for you today to make this the day of your salvation. Don't leave here today without answering those questions that God has placed in your heart. Let's take a moment and, and have a word of prayer and then uh, our band's going to come up and sing one more song with us. God, we thank you for your many blessings and we thank you, Lord God, that who we are is not determined by the things we can afford. It is not determined by what we used to be, but who we are is determined by the fact that we are now yours. We are in Christ, and you have a plan for us. And so I ask, Lord God, that we would sing the words of the songs that we've been singing today and really mean it. Earlier when we, we sang out loud, I am who you say I am. God, help us to let you define our lives. Help us to be willing to yield to your wonderful and beautiful leading. Lord God, I I think that we would be deceiving ourselves if we thought that we could determine every aspect of our identity. Uh, we don't even control our reputation in this world. People are going to think about us the way they want to think about us. But Father, you know our hearts. And so we thank you today and rejoice in this great identity that we have in you, that we are no longer your enemies, but we are part of your family and we can call you our Abba, our Father who loves. Thank you, Lord God, for this new identity in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.